Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Once, I reviewed each of his works in the chronological order of publication, but Ka is a wheel. It all goes round again, and here I am once more back at the beginning on a new phase of the journey to examine each of the endings of the works of Stephen King to determine whether or not King deserves his reputation for having an ability to successfully land his endings. The focus of the podcast is going to be to examine the climax, the falling action, and the resolution of the endings of each of his novels and break it down by character, by themes, by conflict, and by plot to determine whether or not it meets the criteria of being an objectively good ending. I'm also going to weigh in on whether or not I personally like the ending to parse out the difference between subjective and objectivity. Okay, everyone, today we are going to be reviewing the ending to the Dark Tower book one, The Gunslinger, the book that kicked off King's magnum opus, his long-running series that ran in and out throughout, within, around, into, out of um, the majority of the books within the Stephen King universe. This is the sun around which all of his stories, themes, and ideas revolve. This is the story that functions as the linchpin to everything that he has ever written. So, no pressure. Before I begin, however, I want to read a couple reviews. Um, I can't do this without you guys. I'm very appreciative of all of the kind words that you throw my way. So, up first, we have Andy MTO, who writes, What an excellent podcast. Thank you. I am so impressed with the breadth of knowledge shown here with all things Stephen King. I've made it my ritual that whenever I finish a Stephen King novel that I come here and listen to this podcast. The host does a wonderful job breaking down plot points, important character developments, and my personal favorite Stephen Kingisms. Well done. This host has definitely not forgotten the face of his father and proves that Ka is a wheel. So thank you, Andy MTO, uh, for that five-star review. And up next, we have WV. LWYR, another five-star review. Been listening for over a year now. As with many other reviewers, this podcast has become something of a companion piece to Stephen King's work. I consume most of Stephen King's books by listening to them on Audible, and it's become a regular event for me to jump from the Audible app after finishing one of Stephen King's books to my podcast app of choice and then listen to the analysis on the podcast. Keep up the good work. Thank you, WVLWYR, for that five-star review. And last but not least, we have Losha Yogi, who writes, Dear Constant Reader, another five-star review. I remember my introduction to Stephen King was watching Thinner as a young girl with my teenage brothers. They dared me to watch, otherwise eat worms. Needless to say, I sat down for the movie and have been a fan ever since. Your podcast enables me to relive Stephen King's novels and also engage in conversation with you and other constant readers on literature. I truly love that is not canon. You are doing excellent work, and I selfishly want more. I can't wait for his newest collection of short stories to keep me occupied during these troubling times and wish you long days and pleasant nights. All good things. Michelle, quarantined in New Jersey. So thank you, Michelle. I hope that you and everyone else that's listening um, is doing as well as you possibly can uh, during this particular time. Um, as I'm recording right now, I feel like the... Uh, uh, the radio broadcast during that chapter of the the stand where I'm, I'm reporting out. Thankfully, I don't have the military, um, you know, bart, you know, busting down the door to get to me. Um, you know, uh, for me on my end, 
you know, knock on wood, you know, things have been uh, okay or as okay as they can be. Um, I'm going to get to some recommendations at the end of this episode that as, you know, we are all uh, trapped in our homes, um, that I, I, you know, any recommendation that I throw at you hopefully will, will land and, and give you some, some options to, to, to keep yourself busy. Okay, so um, I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary for The Gunslinger right now to provide some context so that we can get into the, um, the discussion of whether or not The Gunslinger meets the criteria for being a good ending. So, here is the Wikipedia. As Roland travels across the desert in search of the man in black, whom he knows as Walter, he encounters a farmer named Brown and Zoltan, Brown's crow. Roland spends the night there and recalls his time spent in Tull, a small town Roland passed through not long before the start of the novel. The man in black had also stayed in the town. He brought a dead man stricken by addiction to the opiate-like devil grass back to life and left a trap for Roland. Roland meets the leader of the local church who reveals to him that the man in black has impregnated her with a demon. She turns the entire town against Roland, and Roland is forced to kill every resident of the town. When he awakens the next day, his mule is dead, forcing him to proceed on foot. In an abandoned way station, and first encounters Jake Chambers, a young boy. Roland collapses from dehydration, and Jake brings him water. Jake knows neither how long he has been at the way station, nor exactly how he got there, and he hid when Walter passed through. Roland hypnotizes Jake to determine the details of his death and discovers he died in a different universe that appears to be much closer to our own when he was pushed in front of a car while walking to the school in Manhattan. Before they leave, Roland and Jake search for food in a cellar and encounter a demon. Roland masters the demon and takes a jawbone from the hole from which it spoke to him. Roland and Jake eventually make their way out of the desert. Roland rescues Jake from an encounter with Succubus and tells him to hold on to the jawbone as a protective charm. Roland couples with the succubus, who is also an oracle, to learn more about his fate and the path to the Dark Tower. In a flashback, it is revealed that Roland is the son of Devan Deschane, a gunslinger and lord of Gilead. The flashback also recalls the brutal training Roland received at the hand of his teacher, Court. Roland revealed how he was tricked into prematurely declaring his manhood by dueling with Court at the age of 14, earlier than any other apprentice. He was provoked by Martin, who served as Stephen's wizard and slept with Roland's mother, Gabriel Deschane. It is established that this was a time of instability and revolution. Roland defeated Court in battle through weapon selection, sacrificing his hawk David to distract Court. Jake and Roland see the man in black at the mountain, and he tells him he will meet just one of them on the other side, which aggravates Jake's fears that Roland will either kill him or abandon him. Roland and Jake make their way to the twisting tunnels within the mountain, traveling on, old, on an old railway handcar. They are attacked by monstrous subterranean creatures called slow mutants. At the tunnel's exit, as the track on which they are traveling begins to break, Roland lets Jake fall into an abyss and continues his quest. After sacrificing Jake in the mountain, Roland makes his way down to speak with Walter. Walter reads Roland's fate from a pack of cards, which includes some omens as the Sailor, the Prisoner, the Lady of Shadow's Death, and the Tower itself. Walter states that he is a pawn of Roland's true enemy, the one who now controls the Dark Tower itself. The Man in Black also reveals that he was Martin, he then sends Roland a vision of the universe. Zooming out past a red planet covered in canals, a ring of rocks, a large stormy planet, a ringed planet, and then to galaxies and beyond, attempting to frighten Roland by showing him how truly insignificant he is. 
Walter then asks Roland to renounce his quest. Roland refuses, and the man in black tells him to go west before putting him to sleep. When Roland awakens, ten years have passed, and there is a skeleton next to him that, assumes, that he assumes to be Walter's. Roland takes the jawbone from the skeleton before traveling to the shore of the Western Sea. Okay. So, this is how we are... And I'm actually going to um, uh, say something about that uh, Wikipedia summary. If I am correct in my memory of the gunslinger, it is not revealed that he is Martin. That the man in black is not Martin. Um, there is the reveal that it is Walter... Um, and I'll, I'll get to that in a little bit, but I don't recall, at least in the original edition, I've, I've only read the, um, the re-release where it's been updated twice, so I don't recall twice or three times, not nearly as many as I had with uh, the original text, but I don't know if that's correct. If I am wrong, or if you have thoughts, write into Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. Okay, so let's, let's talk about the, the ending of uh, The Gunslinger. All right, we're going to talk about it from the climax onward. And if the book has been building to Roland um, searching and hunting the man in black simultaneously with the, the, the question of the, the lengths that Roland will go to in order to meet his quest and fulfill his quest, then the culmination of that conflict is uh is go then there are other worlds than these that moment so the climax is when roland sacrifices jake to fulfill the promise of the very first sentence which is the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed so that's the climax the falling action therefore is roland and the man in black have their palaver by the fire and when um, the man in black shows the gunslinger the um, cosmic scope of things and his place in the universe the universe is the resolution is Roland awakening on the Western Sea to continue his quest. Okay, so let's talk about the criteria for a good ending. Here's the question that I'm going to pose to the conclusion of The Gunslinger. Does it provide an appropriate conclusion to its characters that are consistent with the characters' actions, conflicts, or themes of the book? I would say yes. Jesus Christ, yes. Uh, the ending of the book completely solidifies the characters, specifically the ruthlessness of Roland and the depths he's willing to sink in order to achieve his goal of saving the Dark Tower. With the sacrifice of Jake, we realize that the boy is just the latest in a long line of deceased companions of Roland who have been forsaken in the name of the Tower, the first having been David, his trusted hawk. Um, whether it's a hawk, whether it's a surrogate son, it does not matter. If the choice is between a life and the tower, Roland will always choose the tower. Furthermore, we also get the wise fool persona of the man in black, the tittering jester running rings around Roland the entire time. We sense that despite the metaphysical threat to the nature of the universe, this lunatic is genuinely enjoying his campfire chat with Roland. The symbiotic nature between the two of them is established in the final pages of this book. The gunslinger might be obsessed with the man in black, but only as a means to achieve his goal, while Walter is obsessed with Roland because of his perceived conflict with the gunslinger gives him a larger sense of importance in the fate of Midworld and the universe and everything and, and his relationship with the tower. And spoiler alert for Book 7, The Dark Tower. The true nature of this figure, the man in black, Walter Paddock, 
Walter O'Dim, um, Martin Broadcloak, Randall Flagg. Um, the character is 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 finally observed through as objective eyes as possible. Someone new coming into the story, um, the character of Mordred, and through Mordred's eyes, we see this character as the fool he is, the fool he always had been, when he perceives himself to be a much bigger deal than he actually is. And you can all for for all of my thoughts on this, there are multiple episodes that I have on Randall Flagg where I go into detail about how this is a very polarizing moment in which uh, Randall Flagg is taken off the board so unceremoniously, um, and, but in a way that is very fitting of this character once we realize who this character actually is. And the beginning of this character really is established um, in the conclusion here of, of the gunslinger. Now, I go into much greater detail about the importance and the establishing of the characters in my breakdown of the entire book. And so if you want to hear all of my thoughts on how the characters move out of their mythic introductions where they don't even have names to the personal nature when it becomes personalized and they actually have identity. So it goes from the gunslinger to Roland. It goes from the man in black to Walter. Um, you, you can get my analysis, my deep dive in, um, in my gunslinger episode. So scroll way, 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 way back into the podcast feed and you can get all of my thoughts in there. But King does amazing work with the characters here. He establishes them as the, the these mythic archetypes and then gives them the identity um, that, that they need, that he needs, and that we need in order to kick off this entire series. So next question, does it successfully wrap up the plot? Specifically, do the events build upon one another with consistency? The answer is kind of. Yes, it checks off a box. On paper, the gunslinger catches up to the man in black. And the big confrontation is a fireside chat. It's not exactly what you expect. Nor do you expect Jake to utter the poetry of, go then, there are other worlds like these. Yet... Despite the inauthenticity of a 10-year-old boy stating this line and the anticlimactic non-showdown between these two mythic figures, there's no denying that both of these beats feels right for the moment. And it's not as if we should have suspected that when Roland reached the Man in Black, that the Man in Black was simply going to transform into a door to usher him to the tower. What is the Man in Black but a person? And a person has information. It's the information that resides within the man in black that Roland truly sought. And it's the information that Roland receives. Along with it, we get a trippy sequence of the universe that helps us swallow Martin Walter's monologuing and philosophizing. So if you're looking for a Western-styled shootout, I could understand why you would be disappointed. But so much of the gunslinger establishes the weirdness of what is going to come over the six remaining novels the least of which is the conversation about the nature of existence around a campfire within the Golgotha. My only true criticism that I could hurl at the feet of this particular book is the reveal of the Walter identity, a character that has not been established within the pages of the gunslinger. It makes sense for it to be Martin, and maybe King does this as a swerve, as a um, subversion of expectations, that he is hunting this character 
and he is a shadowy figure. He's a man in black, and we have already been introduced to a man in black in the, the flashback sequences, so the reader equates the man in black with Martin. So already we're thinking that the reveal is going to be that it is Martin, that the person that he has been chasing in the present is the devil of his past that ruined his 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 childhood that that tried to get in the way that broke um the the personal society that he had which was his family and is also a part of the the, the ruination of the larger world at least you know we're, we're led to believe that there is some linkage there and so that by denying us that that king is is actually working on 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 a, a larger level a higher level of the tower than, than we actually, you know, expected. That that's actually a plus. Um, however, it still lands with such a, a weird thud. Um, I don't know if he's operating out this, on this level intentionally. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt um, because everything that he is doing is so... It's written from such a literary standpoint. This is the, the, the most... Um, it seems to be the, the most literary book that he has written, and that's literature with a capital L. You know, it is a living poem. Um, it, it, it isn't really adhering to the, uh, the, the story beats and his, his sensibilities and his strengths that he will go on to, um, you know, really establish in his career. Keep in mind that this really was written when he was still in college and he was still having his head pumped full of, um, you know, what makes for quote-unquote good writing. And so if that's the case, then a subversive swerve, um, you know, definitely might be something that he's operating in here. It's just, it's just, it's weird that it's like, oh, you're Walter, that character that was never mentioned before in the pages of this book, and we never really get to see again. It, it's, it's weird, and, and maybe what King is playing at is that just, it's inconsequential and it doesn't really matter. And that the actions and the words of this character ultimately don't matter. And so as a character beat, you know what? That actually works as well. Does the conclusion, here's the next question. Does the conclusion serve the theme, the symbolisms, and the motifs? Um, so the plot is no more and no less than the first line. The man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. Sequences occur... Um, throughout the book, but only in service of the promise of that line. This allows King to play with the theme and the archetype and symbolism. The crux and the conflict rests on the theme of sacrifice. Roland's soul is at stake. Jake functions less as an actual character and more of an example of the theme of the lengths that Roland will go to to achieve his quest. David the Hawk was sacrificed. Meet the new Hawk, same as the old Hawk. Honestly, the entire book is theme and symbolism. The ending is just the culmination of this. Are there other factors that we need to consider? Uh, spoiler alert for The Dark Tower, um, but it's hard to read The Gunslinger without thinking about the looping... No, I'm serious. Serious. Um, spoiler alert for The Dark Tower. Um, but it is hard to read The Gunslinger without thinking about the looping storytelling of when the ending hands off and the beginning starts. Knowing that Roland chooses the tower over Jake in this book is the nail in Roland's coffin that we see hammered into place in the final pages of The Dark Tower, published decades after this first entry. Um, so, I mean, we, we have to consider the, the gunslinger as its own entity. 
and there is a multiverse, there's, there's a universe somewhere out there in the multiverse. There is an earth in which King wrote this and never got back to the pages of, of the Dark Tower. Luckily for us, on, on Keystone Earth, we, we got this, we got the drawing of the three and the wastelands, Wizard and Glass, Wolves of the Kala, Song of Susanna, the Dark Tower, Insomnia, Salem's Lot, Black House, um, Hearts in Atlantis, Low Men in Yellow Coats, and, and all of the, the books that wove in and out of the Dark Tower, including the epilogue, uh, Wind Through the Keyhole. And honestly, guys, if you have gotten this far and you have listened to all of this and you haven't read the Dark Tower or any of the books and you want to do a, a read of the Dark Tower, do not read Wind Through the Keyhole um, where it lines up in, in the story. Read it in the chronological order of publication because it, it serves as a thematic coda to uh, the, the entirety of the series. Um, it's a nice palate cleanser. It should not be read um, in order of, of, the, of the storytelling um, sequentially. Do it in the order of publication. That is my, that is my plea to you. All right. Um, so that is uh, my thoughts. Those are my thoughts on uh, the gunslinger's ending. For all my thoughts on the gunslinger, make sure that you, you head back into the podcast feed and listen to that particular episode. So I have, based on everything that we have discussed, the first question I'm going to ask is the subjective one. Do I like the ending? Yeah, I do. Um, it's not his best ending. Um, oh, I'm sorry. See, I'm doing it. It's not the ending of his that I happen to like the most because I respect it more than I like it. But you know what? I like it for a lot of reasons, the first of which it has the harrowing moment of, of, of Jake plummeting and the sacrifice there and just the badass line, go then, there are other worlds than these. It gives us something very rich, very meaty, very, something very meaningful, and something that will echo throughout all of King's works with that particular line. Um, and it's just weird. It's a very weird ending um, that, that, that I respect. Um, but you know what? Like, it's, it's one that it doesn't matter so much as I like it, which I do. Um, I think that it's objectively good for all the reasons that we had discussed. Um, it, it meets, it, it fulfills what King was doing with the characters, with the plot, um, with the themes, um, it, it functions so well as a companion piece to the final book um, in retrospect that there's a, it's working on a number of levels and layers that I, I think that we need to be able to check off and say it is a good ending. So that is eight for eight um, in terms of good endings and endings that I happen to like. Um, so remember that all of this this podcast, this particular focus now is revolving around the idea um, and, and, and the criticism that Stephen King doesn't know how to end his stories. Uh, so I don't know. If you disagree with this, if you disagree with um, my, my focus or the questions that I'm asking or the, my assessment of this ending or the endings that had come before, write into Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. All right. Now, with that said, I do want to get into some emails. So thank you for, for listening so far. Um, and I know that there have been some, some feedback about uh, 
you know, listening, uh, re reading the, the emails before the meet of the, the podcast episode. So I, I don't want to, you know, alienate too many people. So I wanted to, to save some of the, the um, emails until now. Um, and the, the first one I'm going to kick off with uh, is a gunslinger inspired email. So I thought it was perfect to read during this episode. Okay. Up first, we have Chris who writes, Dear Constant Reader, I have recently started listening to your show and I'm really enjoying it. Of course, I am skipping to my favorite books first and the Gunslinger episodes were the first two that I listened to. I often agree with your assessments and insight, especially as it comes to the updated version of the Gunslinger. I found the updates really took something away from the tone of the original book and would have happily enjoyed the rest of the series without them. Say thank you. However, I felt you may have missed something in your interpretation of Jake's comment right before he plummets quietly to his death. Go then, there are other worlds than these. You spoke of it um, as out of character for such a young boy and not like something Jake would say or shoehorned in as a plot device. I disagree, and in fact think that the statement is such a pivotal moment in the series. Yes, it's out of character for a young boy, and perhaps even Jake so far in the book, but I think it really represents a number of things to and about Jake. Throughout the series, I would think it's pretty fair to say that Jake behaves in ways that are well beyond his years, and although occasionally slipping back into behavior more befitting his age. I think this moment represents his awakening to the reality he has found himself in, almost the moment he grows up and accepts his insignificance in the grand scheme of things. He has realized that the world isn't the safe place he thought it was, and that this man who he thought was as his savior is about to betray him for his quest. He knows he is not getting back to his home and the world he knew and is resigned to his fate. Those are powerful things for a child to realize and the type of things that will make someone grow up fast. Just my interpretation, of course, but I was surprised at the small amount of import you attribute to it um, as that moment has always had such gravity for me. Thanks for the show, Chris. So Chris, this was a fantastic email. Um, and yeah, I... Still can't help but think that it's something that is out of character. But again, it's operating at a very literary level that you speak of. Um, and so it does make sense from a literary perspective. And I'm very glad that, um, that this email came in in time for me to, to actually um, to, 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 you know, read this on, on air. And then we have uh, Jessica who writes in, um, in regards to um, some of, King's prior endings, The Stand, and The Outsider. Hello, your podcast is a welcome diversion from our current collective states of quarantine and economic shutdown. Thank you for lifting your listeners' minds and spirits. In your discussion of The Stand's conclusion, you mentioned but didn't evaluate the Hand of God plot point, a great example of King's use of Deus Ex Machina. I think these types of endings, another example is the giant spider at the end of It, are one of the prime reasons that King has this undeserved reputation for less than powerful endings. Many of these uh, deus ex machinas work in his writing, but translate horribly in the, in the screen adaptations. The Hand of God is an example that was a little heavy-handed in the book, but it really tanked in the TV adaptation. It will be interesting to see what CBS All Access does with their new version. So let me interject right now to, 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 to go into the, the deus ex machina, um, which if my uh, collegial training... Uh, um, I still have it. It means the god and the machine. And so in in earlier forms of storytelling, a hero would be saved by some external force that was not tied to plot or character actions that literally comes out of nowhere 
a god in the machine, meaning that it is this this external force within the the plot um, of the story that that comes in to save the hero, and and that's why I don't necessarily think that the hand of God in the stand is truly external, because it's born out of Randall Flagg's flailing um, incompetence, hubris, and his when he's realizing that he does not have the stranglehold on the citizens of Las Vegas that he thought that he did, and he really is just the man behind the curtain, if we want to use the Wizard and Oz terminology that has come to define him um, throughout the, the run. Um, so, you know, remember, he, 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 he shoots his, his electrical powers, you know, his little energy blast, and it starts to grow, right? And so in that moment, a lot of things are occurring, right? It's, it's a character beat that it starts to grow kind of in tandem with what's occurring in the book at the same time. It's the character's actions merging and growing with the themes of the book that all you have to do is stand against evil. And yes, the, then the, the force of good, the white, um, God, whatever you want to call it it, it, it starts to work in the favor of our heroes and our protagonists, but it comes when the characters make their stand, and this is the reaction from their antagonist, and the, the, the plot follows the characters and, and thematic suits, you know, so it... it, it I think that it, it services, it springs out of the characters, it springs out of the themes, and it services the plot rather than coming out of nowhere. Um, so I, I don't know if that's a true example of deus ex machina. Similarly, the spider in it, um, I, I don't know, I don't see that functioning as a deus ex machina. Um, so if, if anyone else has thoughts on, on that, please write into Stephen Kingcast at, at yahoo.com. Jessica continu continues, I was surprised that review of the Outsider finale didn't focus more on the deviations from the book's ending that I thought made a significant impact on the effectiveness of this TV show's ending. Specifically, Claude showed up and shot El Cuco and Ralph went back into the cave to put a final end to the creature. These changes, which I thought did nothing to improve the conclusion, diminished Holly's role as a central character slash hero. In the book, she was one who kills El Cuco with the happy slapper. I understand that many viewers would not have picked up on the Mr. Mercedes reference, but this changed ending undermined Holly's agency and weakened an amazing literary heroine. I look forward to your future podcasts and appreciate the time and effort you put into producing them. Jessica, Jessica, thank you for writing in. And you know what? I didn't even think of that with The Outsider, but you're 1,000% right. Um, you know, it, it wound up becoming Holly's story. And... It, Ralph does not need to be the one to deliver the, the, the killing blow. I mean, it, it, it functions well. It serves the character. Um, but really, um, he he is able to put an end to El Cuco by being the one, by finally coming around to believing Holly. And once he believes, the others rally around him. And it's when that quartet is formed that they're able to go um, and effectively end El Cuco. But um, so he is Holly inspiring him to see the world in a different light, empowers everyone else, and then once they're there, she is able to deliver the killing blow. And yeah, after everything that we've seen with Holly and she put her neck out on the line, um, yeah, that would have made perfect sense. And I'm, I'm glad that you wrote in and, and made me realize that. So thank you, Jessica. 
And then we have Spencer who writes, um, so I haven't had a chance to start listening to your new ending episodes, but I'm so glad you found such a great way to continue the podcast. In this crazy isolated time, we definitely need content like this. So thank you. I hope you and your family are staying safe. I decided to read pandemic slash epidemic novels that have been on my list while I'm social distancing and started with Joe Hill's The Fireman. After that, I read Nick Cutter's The Deep, and now I'm about halfway through Chuck Wending's Wanderers, and after, I'm reading the uncut edition of King's The Stand. I just finished listening to your review of The Fireman. I pretty much agree with everything you said, but there was a pretty big thing that I com- that completely ruined the book for me I thought that I would share. He uses His uses of a deaf character and diabetic character were surprisingly completely unrealistic to the point of being offensive. For example, the sign language. John says he knows sign language from when he was a boy, but he learned from his mother in the UK. UK sign language is completely different and doesn't even remotely resemble American sign language, which he calls ALS in the book. Yikes. That would be like saying that an English speaker can communicate with a Spanish speaker because they both talk with their lips. And then to have Harper perfectly understand long paragraphs of Nick's sign language, but for her own sign language to come across as caveman speak. Again, that's not even remotely how sign language works. For the insulin, so Michael, I think that's his name, is typely, is definitely type 1 diabetic, not type 2. He's young, he's fit, he takes insulin. No type 1 diabetic would ever leave their insulin in an infirmary. As someone with type 1 myself, this was laughable. He would have to walk the infirmary three or four times every single day and hope that he can get to the cafeteria and eat fast enough that his insulin doesn't send him into hyperglycemia before his food hits his system. Extremely dangerous and unrealistic. Also, there's someone stealing things around camp, including food at the cafeteria. No, no, no. He wouldn't risk someone stealing the stuff that he would die without in just a few days. There's also small issues with him trying to kill someone who has a working pancreas by shooting insulin into their toes, but that was the main issue for me. I think what was most insulting about this was that Joe Hill used these different abled autoimmune disease real-life experiences just so he could fit his plot and then didn't even give them either the least bit in consideration or research. He says in the acknowledgments that he had three different doctors helping him make sure Harper's medical knowledge and pregnancy were accurate, so this was especially a punch in the gut. I was loving the book, but this just ruined it for me. Anyway, sorry for the rant, but I was curious if you thought about the deaf character issues. I'm not deaf, but I've worked with deaf children and worked on the set of a movie about a boy who becomes deaf, so it stuck out to me. I appreciate your thoughts. Cheers. Spencer, um, great observation, and these are observations that I would not have picked up on if you hadn't um, brought them to my attention. Um, Like I I had emailed Spencer privately, but I I said that what what sticks out for me is is when... um, you know, I noticed when King works with um, characters of disability that have some sort of disability and their exaggerations and caricatures, those stand out to me. Um, Duddits comes to mind. But um, but no, this one I would not have known. So thank you for, for writing in for sure. That was phenomenal. Thank you. Um, then we have uh, Paul who writes... Um, I would like to ask you if you ever noticed the wolfhead cane that keeps popping up in the movies and TV adaptations. It was Andre Linoge's in Storm of the Century. Stu was walking with it at the end of The Stand, and I believe it was for sale in Needful Things. I noticed it too made an appearance in Salem's Lot. My question is about the significance of that cane. Is it a mystical piece from another world? I ask because it would it could be happenstance that frequents the screen. Is it something that King himself used to walk with at one time? These are the things that keep me up at night, LOL. Thank you for keeping the fans of Stephen King in a constant state of enthusiasm about his properties. I fell in love with King after reading Kane Rose Up. I'm not an inspiring assassin, but when the emotion caused in that short story captivated me at a young age, I believe I was about 10 when I read it. Ever since, I've been a fan of King and haven't looked back. 
He's simply a hero of mine and proudly waved my flag of kingdom. Without further rambling, I will end by congratulating you on a successful podcast and will solemnly promise to be a loyal listener and supporter of the Stephen King cast. Regards, Paul. Paul, thank you so much. I don't know about the um, the wolf head. Um, I know that he he loves the wolf iconography. He, he utilizes the images of, of wolves throughout uh, a number of, of his books. But the, the cane itself, I don't remember. Shame on me. Um, Stu walking with the wolf cane at the end of the stand. I don't remember having uh, a wolf's head on it. I don't remember it in, in these things. I just don't remember. I definitely remember it in Storm of the Century, but I can't speak about this because I don't have a recollection. Um, but if anyone out there does, please write in to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And last but not least, um, I just want to throw out a couple recommendations for everyone if you have some spare time. If you are a fan of Twin Peaks, Twin Peaks, Twin Peaks Season 2, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, and Twin Peaks Season 3, The Return, um, and are a fan of David Lynch, and you love musing over what is really going on with Twin Peaks, then I have the perfect way to spend four hours and 35 minutes of your time. All you have to do is go onto YouTube and type in Twin Peaks Actually Explained, comma, no, really, comma, from uh, Twin Perfect. Um, that, is the, that is the channel. Um, this is... Um, a fantastic way to spend your time and the the, the host um, does an incredible job at creating um, a video a four plus hour long video essay that takes David Lynch's philosophies on movies storytelling and television and takes these philosophies and then applies these philosophies to Twin Peaks and makes sense of every single thing that you ever questioned about the show, the movie, and the return. It all makes sense. Um, so it's just one theory. It's well argued. You can totally believe it, or you can still believe whatever you wanted. And if you want more Twin Peaks content, then of course you can always listen to Hanging with Agent Cooper, a Twin Peaks podcast. Um, which is hosted by me. I haven't touched it in years, um, but I have all of my thoughts on the 18 episodes of Twin Peaks The Return. You can head on over there. Um, and one more recommendation I have, if you are Star Wars fans and you have not ever watched Star Wars The Clone Wars or Star Wars Rebels, I strongly recommend that you do that. There was recent rumors that at long last fan... Um, fan favorite fan casting has come true that Rosario Dawson um, might play Ahsoka Tano in the upcoming season of The Mandalorian. Um, Ahsoka Tano is a character that was created by George Lucas and Dave Filoni um, for Star Wars The Clone Wars and quickly became a fan favorite and rightfully so. Dave Filoni, if you remember, is also one of the co-creators and executive producers of The Mandalorian. Um, and uh, Mandalorian culture plays a big role in both the Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels. And if Ahsoka Tano is coming into the Mandalorian, then you definitely have to become acquainted with this fan favorite character and her relationship with the story and the characters of Star Wars in both the prequel era and right before the... Um, the events of A New Hope. 
I have long been a fan of Star Wars The Clone Wars as I feel it redeems the prequels. Um, I was so in love with The Clone Wars that I was hesitant to engage in Rebels. And I, I, I kind of popped in and out of the first season and didn't really fall in love with it. But I forced myself to do um, to give it another shot. I'm glad that I did um, because it's some of the greatest Star Wars content ever created. Um, the, the space battles are phenomenal and not just not just you know looks good. I mean, they're intricate the and it's, it's actual war with battles and you can see both sides trying to outmaneuver each other and outthink each other and out strategize each other. Um, there are it, and it's a perfect blending of the prequel era right and right before um, the, the the original era of a new hope. It's it's in this post Clone Wars world, um, you know, currently w w engaging with a rising rebellion against the Empire. So th there's cool imagery um, that you will see um, of of remnants of clone troopers fighting stormtroopers. Um, remnants of a separatist army. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's, and the questions that were never explored in um, the Clone Wars, um, I mean, the, the, the prequel era get to be explored in both the Clone Wars and Rebels. You know, ideas of um, free will versus destiny and, you know, um, you know, whether or not the clones have a choice and what that means to them and how they feel about it and how they react to it. It's just, it goes in and tells the stories that we, that Lucas himself never got to tell. So those are my recommendations for this week. Everyone, please stay um, safe and healthy and sane during this time. And I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast. <laughs>